first reading is from Isaiah 52 and 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mortals. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Thank you. 
The reading from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 to 30. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than people, and the weakness of God is stronger than people. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no flesh might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, grant us to know and live by the wisdom and power of the cross, which is to the world at foolishness and weakness. May we then die to ourselves as bearing witness to your son's dying for all the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in what's uh, debated to be the earliest uncovered depiction of Jesus' crucifixion, a piece of ancient graffiti was found engraved in a plaster on a wall near the Palatine Hall in Rome, dating around the 1st and 3rd century A.D. Now, it, it depicted a young man looking up as though worshipping or praying to a human figure, but with a head of a donkey hanging on a cross. In an inscription written below the drawing, it says in Greek, Alexamenos worships God. The drawing is referred as the graffito blasphemo, or the blasphemous graffiti. Some archaeologists uh, interpret it as an explicit form of religious mockery. It's an ancient meme, if you will, that, that poked fun, not just at the person so named as Alexamenos, but also at his Christian religion. See, the donkey's uh, head was at the time a symbol of ridiculousness. It's a stupid joke to ancient Roman society. See, see, that little graffiti is a window into the distant past that gave perspective to this popularly held sentiment about the Christian religion during its beginnings. That it's ridiculous. That the Christian cross was a stupid joke. 
Now to publicly say such things today would be rude, it would be impolite, and some may even say it constitutes hate speech. But despite that, to, to speak anything against Christianity in this day and age it can be a trendy thing to do. It can be a justifiable thing to do. For good reasons or not, you know, for good reasons. Like high-profile scandals in the Western church, the piling up of its public record of wrongs committed by its leaders and institutions even today. For such public mockery, as one can argue, is, is well incurred. And then there are many, the many dogmas and doctrines of Christianity that any serious uh, person looking into them will have to reckon with. Now especially the distastefulness and the offensiveness of the central message of the cross. There are, there are tons to divide over and depart from Christianity. But the one thing that will never fail to confound and offend not only ancient sensibilities back then, but also our late modern palates today, is the scandal of the word of the cross. The scandal of the word of the cross. I invite us, as you're able to turn in your Bibles or Bible apps or your pew Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 23. You could look with me in verse 23. The Apostle Paul. He described the word or the preaching of the cross as a stumbling block. In the Greek, it says a scandal. It's a scandal to every cultured and known world back then. See, Paul is saying the cross was a pothole. It's a speed bump on the road. It will trip you up. Or rather, it's a giant boulder right in the middle of the highway. You're driving into it, and you either turn back around, or you have to find a way over it, or through it, or underneath it. Either way, you have to deal with it. It's right in front of you. It's in the way. It's in the way. You have to deal with it. Why was the cross scandalizing? Right, crosses today is a jewelry piece. It's a tattoo art on your arm sleeve. In the world of marketing, it's the brand and logo of the millions of brands and logos out there. Why was the cross scandalizing? And let me put it this way. See, the way the early Christians talked about the cross back then may have likely produced the same shock, the same horror, the same scandal to my describing today that a dead and smoldering body of a man who was lynched by a mob in the U.S. was left to hang on a tree branch. That's God's answer to the world's problems. And that's God's answers to your problem in life. And imagine all over social media. You see trending these viral videos, TikToks on YouTube. A few of the friends of this dead man claiming to have seen and met the man alive. And then they said that he's God's forgiveness to all of our wrongdoings. That he's the only way for the world to be changed for good. That he's God's solution to our suffering. God's verdict against evil. God's justice against oppressors and despots of the world. This same man who was lynched, murdered, and left to hang on a tree branch. How would you respond if you saw those videos? 
As I kept thinking about the image, it, it still shocks me. I'm, I'm kind of shaking just talking about it. I even hesitated a few times just to describe it. I mean, personally, I would not know what to think or feel if I saw or heard it online for the first time. My, my reaction would have been that this is absolutely ridiculous. That's offensive. This is some kind of twisted, sick joke. Like, like who, who would tolerate or accept such a message? How would you even see such videos? See, back then, you, you would never talk or even mention the cross in any conversation. You wouldn't even draw near to joke about it. It was always too soon. See, the cross was the distinctive instrument of empire for special purposes. It was the brick glass in case of emergency. It was the Roman trump card. See, the punishment, the punishment of the cross was too demeaning for Roman citizens. It was issued only to slaves, to traitors, and to capital criminals. The cross had this special effect. It converted these people into billboards, into victims that were forced to play a special part in Rome's propaganda campaign and its machinery that message to the known world, Rome is supreme, we can and will hang you to dry, so don't even try. The cross was about power. The cross was about power. The cross was the most decorative play of human power in its most elaborate and most brutal form. What it did is it distilled, filtered, and dissolved the victim being crucified into a bloody joke. It made the person into a meme out of their own flesh. It made a person into an official imperial tweet saying in all caps, Rome is supreme, get in line, get in line. This is about power. The cross was about power. How then did the cross, as preached by the church over 2,000 years, become about the destruction of empire, about the undoing of power, about the repudiation of human domination over all the world? How did that happen? It's like me trying to now market these following slogans today as your next life verse or your um, mission statement, things to live by. Right? Be a loser. Just give up. Give away everything. <laughs> you want to live? Then die. They don't make any sense to us at all. At best, they sound obliquely ironic and cool enough to be get printed on a t-shirt. But no one in their right mind really thinks to live by them literally. The word of the cross is it's still a stupid joke to us. It's still a stupid joke to us and to the world. But then we read in verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than people, and the weakness of God is stronger than people. The English translation doesn't actually capture Paul's actual phrasing here. Paul literally is saying here, For the foolish, foolish thing of God is wiser than people, and the weak thing of God is stronger than people. It's an object. Paul was referring to an object, a thing, as though God were holding something in his hand. It's like an instrument, like a fidget spinner, like a tool, like a tree branch in his hand. 
That, that thing Paul described is a foolish thing. The, 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 the adjective that Paul used is where we get the word moron from. It's this moronic thing, a weak and stupid thing. And that foolish, moronic, weak, and stupid thing of God in God's hand is a bloody wooden cross. Picture this, the infinite, most powerful God of all time and space in his flex of power and proof of divinity. He takes an object, as it were, from his celestial tool belt as though he were Batman. He's going to prove to everyone else that I, I, I'm the big deal here. And he holds it up right in front of all the world, right before the eyes of emperors, in front of sovereigns, in front of all the billionaires and oligarchs of the world, in front of kings and military commanders, in front of presidents and popes and angels and demons and kings, this bloody wooden cross, God's foolish, moronic, weak, and stupid thing of God. And Paul says, this is God's ultimate proof, his final argument to the universe that this thing this is my wisdom. This thing is my power. This thing is my strength. What is up with that? In Tolkien's uh, fantasy universe of the Lord of the Rings, we rarely get to see from the perspective of the one from whom the title, the Lord of the Rings, is derived, the, the Dark Lord Sauron himself. Now, there was this one interesting YouTube video I watched recently that ventured to psychologize Sauron, as it were, stepping into his mind, seeing through his great eye, so to speak, to dissect his motives and following his perspective that led eventually to his own demise. You may have read the book, you've probably seen the book, uh, the movies, I'm not spoiling anything here. You see the epic drama that unfolded in Tolkien's universe between the various races of men, dwarves, elves, orcs, ants, the Maiar and the Valar, these are referring to the powerful demigods and divine spirits of the world. The whole drama really between them in Tolkien's world was basically about their wrestling, struggling for power. It was about their wrestling for power. Sauron lived and breathed in this world of the wrestling and the struggle of power. A world where everyone breathed in competition and then breathed out opposition. Breathe in competition, breathe out opposition. So Sauron, in that world, he schemed for total domination. He consolidated, consolidated his power in this one ring. Then he pretended to bestow a proxy rings to the, all the rest of the leaders of the races in Middle-earth as a strategic attempt to control them by this one uh, master ring, this one ring. As most of you know, probably Sauron eventually lost the ring. And then for someone, again, for someone who lived in this environment, competition, opposition, Sauron correctly assumed that everyone else would desire to wield and weaponize that ring of his for their own quest for power. And you know what? That's exactly what everyone else did to their own demise. That's, every, that's what everyone did when they got hold of the ring. Until it went to a halfling 
a lowly hobbit named Frodo, who had no taste for power, who had no use for power. It was a nuisance. It was annoying to have power for a hobbit. And Sauron didn't know this. And we saw in the movies and the book, in every attempt to recapture his one ring, Sauron kept presuming upon the singular purpose for which he created this ring. It can only, in his mind, it can only be used as an instrument of power. That's, that's all you can do with it. That's really all that it's supposed to do. And it did not and would never occur to Sauron that someone could choose to give up the one ring or to even think to destroy it. That was never a possibility to him. It was inconceivable for someone like Sauron. It's like him trying to picture a circular triangle. Now in the YouTube video, the, the narrator speculated that as the Tower of Baradur began to crumble, just as the One Ring started to melt in the heart of Mount Doom, and as the great eye of Sauron twitched, frantically in panic and dilating in horror, the narrator commented, for the following seconds and minutes of his destruction, Sauron realized for the first time this novel thought that he had been wrong. Not everyone would want to use the ring for their own power. And it wasn't just Sauron who fell it was his entire worldview. It was the entire world of the Middle Earth that fell with him. The world of competition. The world of opposition. Our world today is no different than Tolkien's world. We're a world that breathes in competition, breathes out opposition. Life is a game of thrones. It's a marketplace of highest bitter wins. It's an evolutionary chopping block of survival of the fittest and the fiercest. But could all of that be wrong? Could all this be wrong? Could everything that we know and feel and see on media and on film and what we read, what we see on the trends, could all of those be wrong? When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just that Rome fell. Empires fell. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just the high priest Caiaphas and King Herod who fell. Religious and political corruption fell. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just Satan who fell. His satanic worldview fell. His demonic ways were destroyed. cross is still a stupid joke because it remains inconceivable to this world, an impossibility to our human convention of war and military conquest, of gaining in capitalist profits, of getting stuff over and above others. It's so stupid and silly. The cross is a fatal rejection of this way of life. It's a fatal rejection of the way of this world that has only known about the cruelty and randomness of life, the absurdity of evil, the competition and opposition of the strong against the weak, 
the vying of power and domination by those who can and they think they can get away with it. That's all the world has known. It would not, would never occur to us, to the world, and to the devil that anyone could and would choose to give up power or to give themselves over to be destroyed. Until God in Jesus Christ gave himself over to destruction by being nailed to the cross. And suddenly, and suddenly, the world was turned downside up. In his book, Dominion, uh, the British historian Tom Holland uh, described how the rise of the worship of a crucified God had remade ancient Roman society in their cultic practice of venerating the tombs and bones of renowned figures of history. See, back then it was common practice to pay homage at the tombs and bones of Roman heroes, right? These heroes were what? Uh, military commanders, warriors, gladiators, generals and conquerors and emperors. They were the embodiment of the imperial Roman ideal of might and valor and victory and conquest. What else? Christianity spread throughout the empire. The practice of veneration continued on, but now at the bones and tombs of martyrs, Christians who died brutally on account of their faith, of common people, of slaves who were venerated as saints because of their sacrifice or their noble deed of service at the cost of their own health, their own family, and their own lives. The nobodies, the unimpressive, the good-for-nothings of the world, they were now being lifted up. And they were given place in the halls and history of memory. The world was being flipped downside up as people started to worship a crucified God. A God who can bleed. A God who chose to bleed. A God who became weak, a God who gave up power, a God who was mocked, whose head was crowned with thorns, whose head you could still replace with the head of a donkey. Still enduring the scorn of the world. The world was flipped downside up. It's now possible to gain your life by losing it. It's now possible to have everything when you give it all up. It's not possible for losers to be winners. It's not possible to live when you die. It's possible to be struck on your face and then you can turn the other way, the other cheek. It's now possible to bless those who are cursing you at their face. It's now possible to love and bless those who hate you, those who are your enemies. And all of these, for Jesus Christ's sake. <laughs> but you know what? Not only are all of these now possible, this, this is the cool part. They have become livable. They are livable. But even more, not only are these livable, they are laudable in this world. What happened to our world? What happened to our world? The world was flipped 
downside up. What happened? How the cross, the cross, this foolish, moronic, weak, and stupid thing of God, that's what happened. And the, the reverse also became possible. You can really lose your life if you gain everything else. That is possible now. You get nothing if you don't give up anything at all. That is possible. You can be a loser if you are a winner in everything else. That is possible. You can and you will die if you only live for yourself. Our world has been flipped downside up. It's not the same. Why are we still living that way? Even with the decline of Christianity in the West, we still live in a world that had been overshadowed for centuries by the scandal of the cross. In that it becomes inconceivable to believe and live any other way than by the difficult virtue of self-denial, by aspiring towards selflessness, by promoting the ideal of loving the other more than yourself. These virtues actually have become somewhat strangely self-evident now or even assumed in our Western liberal democratic society. If you were to live or suggest any other way, you'd think this person is a narcissist. You're arrogant. Something is wrong with you. Something's evil about you if you say otherwise. Right? Something has happened to this world. And even so, don't get me wrong, though the world is still largely about competition and opposition, we now live in a world that celebrates self-sacrifice, that abominates narcissism and self-entitlement, that takes up the voices and stories of the oppressed and the marginalized, that demands accountability from the powerful and the wealthy, that upholds the dignity of every human being as having individual intrinsic value. And it's sadly a world that has forgotten and is actively uprooting itself from the soil of its Christian past as it grasps at the remains of the wilting flowers, the withering blooms, the rotting fruits of its Christian inheritance. And yet the scandal of the cross continues to cast its shadow over the world. The shadow and the scandal of the cross still haunts our Western democratic psyche. It's there. It's in the back of our brains. We're just trying to forget how to talk about it or where it came from or from whom it came from. We're trying to forget it for bad reasons. It's still whispering the fading tune of our need to repent of our immorality and sin, of our need of obedience and faith in God, our need to acknowledge the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the Lord of all the universe. So then let us ask followers of Jesus, if you claim yourself to be a Christian, let us as followers of this crucified God Take up our own crosses. This foolish, moronic, weak, and stupid thing of God. And retell, retell to our world of what it's forgotten. Of what it is forgetting. Reminding our world of how it has even come to now enjoy the benefits and the transformation of society 
that it has taken for granted so many times because of the cross. As we, with our own lives, with the way that we use our credit cards, the way that we use our phones, the way we are talking about other people, reenact to this world how we can and should give up power for the sake of the other. The cross was about power. But Jesus made it to be the giving up of it, the relinquishing of it, the handing over of it, so that others may be lifted up. The cross was a stupid joke. But by this stupid joke, God made a joke out of the way of this world. And he is the one who is laughing even now. But he is laughing with joy because he will make everything new by this thing. He laughs with us. For he has made him who was hung on the cross to be all power, all wisdom, all strength and life forevermore. For the glory and power of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.